the world's greatest playground. She was a gentle and an elegant lady in her day, regal in movement with her train flowing behind her. She was sleek and smooth and poised, and she could be exciting, sparking along under her overhead electric line. She was a friendly neighbor, stopping by the way for the convenience of all of her acquaintances. That's why it took her two and a half hours to cover the 66 miles from Salt Lake City to Payson, the terminus of the Salt Lake Interurban Line. Sometimes she would pull a caboose, and sometimes she had an open observation car on the back. From there, you had the best seat in the world to view the vistas of Utah and Salt Lake counties as you clacked along at speeds up to 65 miles per hour. No children were allowed on the observation deck. But if your father worked for the train line and your mother was very convincing with the conductor and very strict with you, Sometimes on a slow day, they would let you and your brother slip out onto the deck for the last part of the ride home. It is probably poor taste to discuss a lady's personal habits, but to a child, they were too interesting to ignore. Environmental concerns in their many forms were decades in the future. And so the interurban line restrooms consisted of an open throne of the type to which many of us were accustomed in our own homes, or to be more specific, out back of our own homes. A portable one-holer speeding down the track was a scary but fascinating piece of technology to my brother Gordon and me. Looking down the hole, you could see the gravel and the railroad ties zipping by underneath you at supersonic speeds. The thought that one's personal possessions or one's personal self might somehow fall down that hole and be sandpapered into individual child molecules on the train bed roadway was a frightening but always intriguing possibility. To my knowledge, no watch or pencil or child ever fell through the toilet hole on the tracks below. Other things did, of course, but uh, <clears throat> Utah was open country then, and so long as you did not use the facility inside the city limits, or heaven knows while stopped at the train station, no one but the cows in the trackside pastures would be aware. Parts of the Salt Lake Interurban were designed and built by Mrs. W.M. Smith of Redlands, California, reportedly the only woman railroad contractor in the United States. She was assisted by her daughter, Irene, though Mrs. Smith was described as a, quote, formidable lady. She and Irene may have had some input on the aesthetic side of the trains. They boasted some of the finest interior appointments of any such train in America. Green upholstery inside, red colors outside made a bold statement as the train wound its way through the city and the countryside. Two special guest cars had wood paneling above the upholstery and carpet on the floor. Few things in the world are perfect, however. 
And to us children, the interurban was never quite a train because it didn't blow smoke, go chugga, 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 and hiss out steam. The electric motors that drove it were a little too civilized for our liking. Once they parked it in the yards across the street from our house, however, it was a train of the Old West. Cowboys, bandits, sheriff's posses, and outlaws inhabited it. Even Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and the Pinkerton Detective Agency did battle back and forth across the tops and through the corridors of this train. At least in our minds they did. I don't care how rich, favored, pampered, or advantaged any child in the world may have been. The Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the young Princess Elizabeth, the children whose parents owned Lagoon Amusement Park north of Salt Lake. Nobody had a playground to match the one at the east end of Utah Avenue in Payson. Nobody. Forget your toy trains and miniature cars. We had the real thing. One day they dumped a pile of fine coal next to the tracks. The word went out through the neighborhood grapevine, and we were there on the heels of the train crew to play king of the mountain in that wonderful slippery black coal. The train repair crews would kindly leave out big pieces of trains, which we could convert into submarines and space modules. They left a back lot of abandoned train cars we could hide in and run back and forth across the tops of. Ore and coal cars with their slanted floors became the Himalayas for climbing and sliding with a little imagination. Sets of iron wheels on axles we could roll down the track and burl on them like a logger until a mighty, with a mighty clang they would hit together. At that point we had to take off running because that would draw the attention of the train people. The blue-collar workers would just holler at us and wave a hand and we would skitter away until they left and then come back. Everybody knew the game and played it, but there were serpents in this child's Garden of Eden, specifically Old White Shirt. When you saw Old White Shirt appear, it was time to run for the house, hole up and start making up your alibi in case White Shirt came pounding on your door. He never did, but he might, we told each other. Sometimes you could see two white shirts or more walking around the facility, poking around here and there, talking about who knows what. White shirts were the executives from the Salt Lake office, and they took our shenanigans more seriously than those who worked in the yards did. But nothing short of posting armed sentries shoulder to shoulder around the place would have kept us from out of there. I think the company, the workers, and, and even the white shirts knew that. I suspect they even sympathized with us. Maybe the white shirts weren't working there at all. Maybe they just liked to play in the trains too. We would occasionally peek into the windows at the plush interiors of the rolling stock. 
but it was out in the back where the outlaws, the aliens, and the enemies of goodness, truth, and the American way hid out. There was a war going on in much of the world. The war outside was horrible. I learned that later in life. But in the train yards, war was an adventure. We did battle with the Germans and the Japanese. They were known by terms that would not be polite or appropriate to use today. Whatever the enemy, he wouldn't have stood a chance against us. In the train yard, we had not only our battalions of land troops, we had a naval armada as well. Petit Neat Creek drains from off the slopes of Mount Nebo and other mountains through Payson into Utah Lake. But on its way in those days, part of the creek would pause and make a big puddle in the lower end of the train yards. In the summer, it dried up to the great relief of the mothers, homeowners, and mosquito swatters. But in the spring, it could be a couple of feet deep. From the train yard, now converted to a shipyard, you took a wooden pallet. You and three or four friends dragged two abandoned railroad ties down to the frog pond, as we called it. Lake Inferior would have been more appropriate, but we didn't think of that. You put the pallet on top of the ties and launched them into the pond. And you had yourself a pretty speedy PT boat. It would hold up a crew of one, powered by a pole from the grove of willow trees that grew next to the pond. If you needed a cruiser, a battleship, or heaven knows, an aircraft carrier, all you had to do was drag down more ties and find a bigger pallet to put on top of them. Now three or four friends could man this worthy vessel. But we learned in actual combat the same lesson the Spanish learned when the English destroyed their armada in 1588. Spain had monstrous men-of-war battleships. The British had their small but nimble ships that could sail around and attack the Spanish in their vulnerable parts and then speed away before they were under the big guns of the Spanish men-of-war. That's what happened in the Battles of the Frog Bond. Not only were the big ships unwieldy, but the crews were shamefully undisciplined. Some people would push from one direction with their poles, others from the opposite direction. The captain's orders went totally unheeded. This was because every member of the crew thought that he was the captain. Before long, the worthy vessel would show some engineering flaws. The main one was that the pallet was just sitting on top of the railroad ties. In the heat of battle, all the crew would gather on one side and it would start to tip. We would run back to the other side and tip it the other way. In the process, the railroad ties would slip out from under the pallet and float away. The wounded warship would try to limp off to dry dock, but it was too late. She would sink with all hands aboard, or tip and leave us standing knee-deep in our school shoes. Then for us, the war was over. We were all POWs, sentenced to house arrest just as soon as our mothers heard our squishing shoes come through the back door.
Bonnie Montague would get the longest sentence because his parents were the most strict. Mine were in the middle. Max Reese would get off with a scolding, partly because his parents were more lenient, mostly because he was a genius in negotiation. He might even end up with a new pair of shoes. Before we faced the inevitable, we would wade in our soggy Levi's and squishy shoes and go lie on a rock on the bank to see how much the pollywogs had grown since we did this last. That was what the Utah interurban line meant to us, our beloved playground and training ground for life. We learned mechanical engineering, excavation, military science, marine biology, and uh, penology when we got home. We knew it was a dangerous place. For one thing, there was a sign nailed on the wall of the big brick shops where they worked on the trains. The track went close to the building, so posted on the building was a sign in black letters on white background with rust around the edges. It said, quote, warning, will not clear man on side of car, unquote. I knew the words, but I couldn't understand what the message was. I learned later it meant that a person holding the ladder and riding on the side of the car had better get off before he got to the building because there wasn't room to clear him. But this was a little complicated for me to figure out. Fortunately, Mildred Bernson, who lived on a, she lived a vacant lot on a house down from us, and she was smarter and older than we were. And she knew everything. She mentioned that to us occasionally. She carefully explained to me that this, what the sign meant. If you got squashed on the side of the railroad car, the company would not come and scrape your remains off. That is, they would not, quote, clear man on side of car, unquote. Apparently, your friends, family, and loved ones would have to come with a shovel, a paint scraper, a sponge, and a bucket, and clear you off and take you home. Um, eventually, even the gentlest of ladies grows old, and so did the Salt Lake Interurban Railroad Line. They began to call her the Red Heifer, or Leapin' Lena. The automobiles took away her passengers, the trucks made off with her freight, and soon, instead of 22 trains a day, they were down to 12, then six. Her roadbed got less attention. It got so bumpy and out of alignment that they said you could buy a ticket to Salt Lake and get twice your money's worth. Instead of 66 miles straight to Salt Lake, you got double your travel for your dollar actually a cent and a half a mile. By the journey from side to side and up and down that the wiggly train bed took. In 1946, she pulled her last string of cars through the petite neat hill cut and off to Salt Lake. They shut her down. 
Fortunately for us, it took a few years to get all the junk out. Then the city took it over to maintain their equipment. So it wasn't a total loss. Eventually it went away. But our train of the Old West still had its memorials. One was the cow barn tool shed in the Hyatt's backyard. This was made out of wood from a boxcar that my father negotiated with the train company. We and the neighbors tore it down, hauled the wood away, and built our chicken coop and cow barn, later transformed into multiple-use outbuilding, then a shed. We were recyclers before it was fashionable. Good thing. Otherwise, they would have burned it up as they did the other boxcars. A spectacular fire, but a loss of valuable wood in those post-war days. And even more impressive than our cowborn memorial was a municipal landmark to the name of the eastern financier who put up the money to build the line. He wasn't quite sure he wanted to do it, so the fruit growers on Provo Bench sweetened the pot. They wanted to carve out a city on that cold, windy, rocky hillside above Provo, and they proposed to name it after the financier railroad man. He took them up on it. His train died in 1946. He died in 1951. But his name just keeps getting bigger, pushing past 50,000 people. Now write his name on their return address. The name of Walter C. Orem. The dynamic city of Orem is a fitting memorial for a sharp businessman and a lovely lady of the rails. But there really should be another big brass plaque somewhere saying, Here was the greatest playground any child ever had. In addition to our world-class playground, we had Saturday movies, which included rustlers, fistfights, gunslingers, and the ever-present danger of growing up. <laughs>